that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a little reminder from last week, uh, or first time if you missed it, uh, we're looking at a message given in Malachi specifically. We're looking at a message to a people who have forgotten the love of their father. That's why the very first verse in the book of Malachi is the Lord telling his people, I have loved you, or the first statement in that first chapter. I have loved you. The people that Malachi is addressing, they were not taught by their earthly fathers well. Uh, the fathers of their day were not teaching their sons and daughters. And there's consequences for that, of course. Uh, this is a pretty hopeless situation that Malachi enters into. Uh, but there is hope offered at the very last verse in the book. And we're beginning with the ending. I'm, I'm keeping the ending in mind for you. The last verse of the entire Old Testament offers this hope, that the hearts of the fathers will be turned to their children, and the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers. This is what was needed of Israel. It was what was needed in the nation of Israel, with God the Father being their father, his heart being turned, always turned towards them. But they had neglected his love, they had forgotten his love, and they had lost their reverence then for holy things. They had lost their reverence for the things of God because their connection with God had been relegated to just a, a ho-hum kind of everyday thing without anything special attached. They, this happened in a generation before Malachi, with Haggai prophesying to their grandfathers and grandfathers, and in his generation, it took on this form of apathy. They just weren't interested in doing the work that was set before them. Uh, they were given the task of building a temple, and they thought, well, once we've stopped, it's too hard to start again. Now, years later, when the temple had been built, Malachi's generation stopped caring about that temple, about true worship. And the result was a, a, a parallel apathy was that they stopped caring about their own families. In Malachi chapter 2, God is going to address the priests, the people who should have cared most about the holy things. The, the priests should have been the ones that were most diligent in raising their children in the Lord. These were people who had been entrusted with the sacred, who should have known better. Let's just read what the Lord says to them in Malachi chapter 2. Verse 1 says, And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already. I, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and no one, and one will take you away with it. Okay, gross, first of all. That's <laughs> You, gross. Uh, when a priest, these people that are being addressed, when a priest would offer an animal, you got to remember, they had to deal with the whole animal. Uh, and animals are not just a neat combination of pre-cut steaks and fine leather, right? There's other stuff that gets in the way of those good things. There's the, the awful, uh, and there's the, the icky stuff, um, including the dung. That's not really the stuff you want front and center in your worship service. It's certainly not something you want on the altar with the barbecue portion of worship, right? So in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, you can read about this. God set up rules. He, he said, okay, that, that stuff, that part of the animal that isn't part of the feast, you take that outside the camp. 
you remove it from the sanctuary. And then you wash your hands really good and change your clothes and get back to the nice part. What the Lord is saying in Malachi is that if the priests don't start taking worship seriously, if they don't start caring again for the holy things, it would be fitting for this unclean mess to be on them, on the priests. And then when you remove the unholy stuff from the sanctuary, it would include the priests. They would be removed, just like the offal, the dung, all the, the ugly guts and stuff. They would be taken outside the camp, away from the holy things. This is a, a follow-up idea from chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 10, the Lord said, Who is there even among you that are supposed to be maintaining this holiness and worship are? As chapter 1, verse 6 says, that if they're despising the name of the Lord, then God will take out the garbage and they'll be in it. He's going to bring them out with the sewage. He says, you don't, you, don't, you don't belong here with the holy things. Now, it would be easy to think of this statement, this prophecy from Malachi, as, as like an announcement of punishment only. Kind of like Jonah style, right? The only message he says is, God is going to destroy you, period. That's it. And, and sometimes you read the prophets and their announcements of judgment, and we have a short-sighted view, and we think that's all it is. But as you read more of the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll realize that almost everything they say is about teaching a lesson that, if heeded, will draw these people into a further intimacy with the Lord that they hadn't even known before. There's this avenue open for repentance that leads not just to a place of like status quo of where they belonged before they started sinning, but to heavenly realities that even the previous generations hadn't known. And this prophecy in Malachi is no different. Look at verse 4. It says, Then you shall know, after this punishment, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. When the Lord brings correction, it is for the purpose of maintaining a relationship that would dissolve and be unsustainable if the correction hadn't been brought in. If there's no correction, Israel couldn't be close to God. Even the strong language curse that's used there is used in order to bring people around back to the covenant. Why does God correct? In order to bring about a closeness. That's why correction exists. Correction exists in order to bring you closer to the God who gives correction perfectly. The book of Hebrews says he, that he chastens or punishes, correct, every son whom he receives. If you're part of the family, this is how, this is one of the ways, how God brings you close to himself, is he is merciful enough to correct your sin and not allow you to come into his presence with the dung on your face. This doesn't mean correction is fun. Even the passage in Hebrews says it's not. We all agree on that. Christians are not just masochists. He was saying, like, yeah, we enjoy the pain. His suffering is good for us, builds character. That's not the fullness of gospel truth. We don't like it, but we know it's good. And, and we know that it comes from a father's heart. That's where correction comes from. This casting out of the priesthood, if it would happen, would result in the covenant with Levi being restored. And then it would continue, and the priesthood would, would continue and not be cast off. So however strange this might seem, you have to realize this is the method God has used in the past, and it, and it works. If you flip over to the book of Haggai, which you ought to do right about now, I'm going back and forth, you just got to get used to that this month, but it's only a month. <laughs> like the priests who had ignored their important responsibilities in Malachi's time, the previous generation, the people during Haggai's time, had ignored their calling. 
And something similar to the curse that God is threatening in Malachi had actually already happened in Haggai. And they were shrugging their shoulders and putting their hands and saying, how come life is so hard? I don't get it. Things are bad, but like we're such great people. And, and Haggai brings this message from the Lord, and God takes full credit for their hard times. Haggai chapter 1, starting verse 5, says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put them in a, into a bag with holes. Great bank account. First bank of bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you above you, withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, <coughs> on all the labor of your hands. So back in Malachi, God said, I will curse your blessings. In Haggai, it says, I've already done it. This is what happened in Haggai. The people had neglected their call. They had turned from a heavenward goal to a selfish, worldly one. They valued building their kingdoms instead of his kingdom, their houses instead of his house. And as a result, the God who loved them too much to allow them to continue in the, the futility of selfishness took their blessing away. He loved them so much he removed all their possibility for success. Now, did that mean that he cast them off away, you know, from being his children? Clearly, no. Did it mean they got a Babylonian exile 2.0? You know, just do that again. No. He did the very best thing for them. And his correction, rather than being a sign of abandonment, actually proved his fatherly affection. It's the father who chastens every son whom he receives, right? This chastening takes on different forms. In, in here, it's God taking away their success. Uh, in Malachi, it's them. It, it's the Lord correcting publicly the priests. That's an embarrassing thing. We'll talk about that later. Uh, it might look like just giving the prodigal a long leash. If the son is going to make decisions that are self-punishing, the father will let nature take its course, so to speak. In the story of the prodigal son, the father lets the son go. He lets him make his selfish, bad decisions which result in the son's poverty and suffering, which in turn gives the son a bit of clarity, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And he realizes it was better in my father's house. Israel has a good father. Israel had sought its own and done it all so it could enrich itself without being about its father's business. But the good father, in order to bring Israel back to the place where the covenant can be enjoyed, cuts off the supply of wealth for this ambitious son. They're trying to grow wealthy, but their investments are all turning out bad. They're trying to earn money and save it, but the wages are going into a bag with holes. I, I love that. They're saying, didn't I just get paid? And where's the money going? And the Lord takes credit. God takes credit. I took it. I didn't want you to have it. Knock, knock, knock. Trying to get your attention here. Now, you can see that this is not just punishment. It's not just a scolding for the poorly behaved Israelites. It's a wake-up call. 
And he doesn't leave them guessing about how these things happen or what the point is or what his reasoning was. In verse 9, it says, Because of my house that is in ruins, while well, every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withhold its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. He says, I'm not going to let you succeed without me. It's impossible. It is impossible for God's people to succeed apart from God. It's like it's impossible for us to be blessed apart from Christ, because all the blessings are in Christ. Christ is the sum of all spiritual things. It's impossible for us to mature in the faith or have true joy or true happiness or produce the fruit of the Spirit without the Spirit of God in us producing those things. So the Lord is giving this lesson to the people. You cannot be successful apart from me. You cannot be apart, blessed apart from me because blessing only exists in my presence where there is fullness of joy. This fatherly chastening, the good parenting from the Lord, along with the Lord's clear communication through the prophets, it works. It's actually one of the one of the nicer stories in the Old Testament, right? They actually repent. It's pretty cool. It has its intended effect. Read the rest of Haggai, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, these are kind of the guys in charge, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Now, wouldn't it be easy to see the rest of this prophecy and the rest of this, this time of you know, uh, divinely enforced drought and suffering and think, well, the message of the Lord is, I can't stand you guys. A lot of people would come to that conclusion, right? Or the message of the Lord is, he's mean. Um, no, the message of the Lord in all of that, the Lord is saying, I'm with you. I'm right here, but you can't see me because you're trying to pursue success and blessings apart from me. The message that the Lord was speaking in the drought and in the famine was, I am with you, says the Lord. Verse 14, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. We see the end intended by the Lord, to borrow a phrase from James, that he is very compassionate. Now back in Malachi, you don't see that happy ending quite yet. But we do see with crystal clarity the heart of the Lord that is behind these prophecies. So when we see that the message of the Lord in, in Haggai is, I am with you, well, he changes not. His compassions they fail not. The message he's giving the priests in Malachi, same point. The same purpose is to draw people back into this loving covenant with himself. The Lord is drawing his people back into communion with himself. In Malachi, as the prophet is correcting the priests, it's not just bad news. It's a passage <coughs> rich with promise and hope as God reminds his people of his original design, of what he thinks their relationship should look like. The message of the Lord is, I am with you. This is the message that transcends generations, that exists as strongly today as it did in these times. God desires closeness with you, and he is bound and determined to get it. Sometimes it seems like he plays dirty, but he's bound and determined to get it. He will be close to his people. 
these next several verses in Malachi, it's time to go back to Malachi, are all about how good the Levitical priesthood was supposed to be. And God describes his faithfulness to this, this priesthood, giving hope for the future of these prodigals. Read verse 5. It says, My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. Him is the original generation of Levites that were consecrated to God in the book of Exodus. He, the Lord gave the Levites, gave Levi, them, the future generations of Levites. He gave, he gave him a, uh, a legacy that was promised to him. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. Verse 6, the law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned me away from iniquity. This is the teaching role of the priest. They were supposed to be able to tell, holy from unholy. Uh, Ezekiel 44, verse 23, it talks about the priesthood. It says, And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. We see that in the next verse, in Malachi, in verse 7. It says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. These are important ideas for every Christian to get their mind around, because we are that kingdom of priests that's spoken of in the New Testament, right? Every Christian is a priest. Every believer is part of this kingdom that's made up of priests. We're a holy priesthood, um, a royal priesthood. It is your task, then, to keep knowledge. It is your God-given task to be wise, to seek wisdom, and to teach others the way of God. It says people should seek the law from his mouth. Now, you can't control what people seek, what other people, where other people go to seek out information. But if you live a life before the Lord, seeking Him and obeying Him and doing things His way, people will come to you for the answers. They will. If you're a Christian seeking Christ, then other Christians who want more of Christ will come to you to get their share of Jesus. If you are a Christian seeking Christ, living your life directed towards Him, unbelievers will seek you out. Not necessarily for matters of religion. They might not want to talk about that. But it's because as you live life as God intended... It will, by default, look very different from the self-destructive worldliness that is the common default setting of our age. And you, as the kingdom of priests, those, those, uh, that, that race of people that is closer to God, you will be the person that these people come to for wisdom. This is what priests ought to be. The priest that Malachi is talking to had gone kind of a different way. Take the convicting message if it fits. Verse 8. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. The priests have caused many to stumble at the law. What does that mean? It means that there were those who probably would have taken the covenant and then the law of God, the scriptures, very seriously and even eagerly obeyed it. But when they saw the priests offering blind animals as sacrifices and lame animals as sacrifices, they were led into this same act of disobedience. They were able to say, well, if it's okay for the priests to act like this, what would God care if I do the same thing? The partiality that's mentioned in verse 9 could go beyond this. It's possible that the priests were showing some sort of favoritism with some people's offerings or something like that. But it most certainly began with how they treated their own offerings. By saying that the Lord accepted garbage, they were training people to bring garbage to the temple. By showing people through their own actions that the Lord was somehow pleased with a bad job, 
with disobedience, with bad attitudes. Remember, they're saying, oh, the table of the Lord is in weariness. Well, they were training the people to find worship contemptible. Their witness was compromised because they did not worship well. And so God has made these priests contemptible before the people, in the sight of the people. These words that Malachi is prophesying would have humbled the priests in the eyes of the people. You've got this prophet named Malachi telling everyone, with the priests right there, God wishes that we would just take the, the worst part of this animal and rub it on their faces and then take them outside and burn them. That's embarrassing for the priests in that audience, right? And the Lord's saying, I'm making you contemptible in front of these people. Everyone needs to hear this. Because it's better for me to be worshipped in purity and in holiness. But we're not done yet. The priests aren't the only ones making mistakes. And the people who have now heard all these bad things that the priests are doing, well, they're not off the hook. In the next verse, the argument shifts from the priests to the people, or rather it zooms out from only the priests to include the rest of Judah. And while the priests were leading people into a lazy kind of worship, into a religion of apathy, the people followed them. And when their worship of the one true living God ceased to be serious, the first thing that was destroyed after that was their families. Now we know Satan doesn't do anything new. He's not creative. He's got a few tricks that just seem to work in every generation. Uh, Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices. Here's one of his devices that we are not ignorant of. Satan will try to pry you away from worshiping God through whatever means necessary. Once he does, he will destroy your family. Now, of course, that's a two-way street, and he's not opposed to the strategy going in the other direction. He'll seek to destroy your family so that the, you'll stop worshiping God. If that'll work, he's, he's willing to, to play those cards in that order. The sequence is reversible. The connection is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. While the priests were leading people away from the true and, and, and reverent worship that God desired, what they were doing, in essence, was abandoning a covenant. It should be no surprise, then, that the other covenants, like marriage, would then be neglected by those people. By degrading the altar and the temple with these careless sacrifices, making worship look like a chore or something, they were, they were teaching people what faithlessness looks like. And faithlessness can be applied to a variety of situations, can't it? The people are picking up what the priests were laying down. Because of this connection, because of the crucial nature of covenant faithfulness, God speaks through his prophet in terms of fathers and families in order to bring his children back to himself. Now look at verse 10. He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? In other words, if your God-word vertical relationship is in order with the one God and Father of us all, if God is your father, then these people you do life with are your brothers and your sisters. John, of course, takes this up, this theme up in the New Testament and makes it kind of his central thing. But in Malachi, there was treachery in the horizontal relationships. And as we've seen from the first, this was primarily because they had lost sight of the vertical. They'd forgotten the love of their father. And as a result, they slid into a profane kind of treachery and the next, next verse explains what these treacherous dealings are. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
And we're going to change gears here from temple worship to family unity. We're going to change, we're in, he's going to use a metaphor and then you realize, oh, it's not a metaphor anymore. He's actually really talking about marriage. Um, now, it wasn't just that the priests were, who were profaning the sanctuary um, were you know, not good at their jobs. They were, they were leading other worshipers into false worship. And while this bit about marrying the daughter of a foreign god, uh, at first it appears metaphorical, it was also literal. You cross-reference this to Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll read a little bit later today, and realize that the individuals in Israel were profaning the Lord's holy institution of marriage, divorcing their Hebrew wives, and then marrying pagan women. The Lord has opinions about this. Verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Being awake and aware means they have knowingly abandoned one covenant for, uh, for, an, for another way of life. They have knowingly gone after pagan wives. They've divorced their Jewish wives in order to do this. If they think that they can so flippantly thumb their noses at the Lord, so obviously rejecting his commandments, and so cruelly abusing their wives and children, which we'll get to in a second, by turning them out of the house, the offerings that they bring to the temple then, of course, are going to be displeasing to the Lord. This is the kind of worship that he's rebuking. He's rebuking the kind of worship that exists where the person who thinks that their worship is fine, even though all their relationships are completely out of order. He says, no, just shut the doors. I'd rather you not come to church. That's what he's saying. I'm not saying that to you. No, uh, he's, saying, he's saying, I'd rather you just shut the whole thing down because you, you, you're abusing your wives, you're neglecting your children. Do you think that has to matter more than these blind, lame sacrifices that you're bringing? Which do you think I care about more? Now, this kind of worshiper is going with the priests in, in the first part of the, the chapter, verse 13. says, and this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard this offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. He's not saying to these false worshippers, you cry too much. That's not what he's saying. They're not the ones crying. Who do you think the person who is weeping and crying before the altar that the Lord hears and cares for? It's the, the broken-hearted wives who have been cast off by their false husbands. It's the fatherless children whose deadbeat dads had abandoned them. The Lord is speaking to these men, saying, you have covered my altar with the tears of those who are still seeking me. I'm not, I'm not going to receive the goodwill from your hands until you fix this problem. So the offerings brought by the arrogant ex-husbands and absentee fathers are not accepted by the Lord. Peter actually picks up this idea in 1 Peter. He tells husbands to dwell with their wives with understanding giving honor to them, that your prayers may not be hindered, implying, of course, that your prayers will be hindered. That's what's going on in Malachi. The men who neglected their families are men who are praying to a brick wall. Their prayers are hindered. Their offerings are not acceptable. Read the next three verses, verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion, your wife, by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. There's a lot in here. 
This passage actually says more about the mysteries of marriage than just about any other passage in Scripture, except maybe Ephesians 5. Uh, certainly Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, and Malachi 2. Those are your texts that tell us what marriage is, how it's made, what it's for. I'll show you those things a little bit here in a second, but the real important thing in the context of this whole book is that the men of Israel were neglecting true worship, and as a result, or as a precursor, kind of a chicken and egg thing, they were neglecting their other covenants. They were divorcing their wives, and God absolutely hated it. The faithlessness of, in worship led to faithlessness in families. The two were inextricably tied together, and the results were devastating, not just for Israel as a holy nation, but for Israel as a nation at all. This nearly led to Israel's extinction with more efficiency than Assyria and Babylon combined. Again, more on that later. But we need to look at how God sees marriage here. In verse 14, God says to the men about the wives whom they had divorced, she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, to my knowledge, this is the first time in Scripture where marriage is referred to as a covenant. A covenant in Scripture is not merely a promise or contract between two people. It's closer to an act of divine creation, ex nihilo. That's more what it's like, where God makes something new out of a promise. And a covenant, rather than being only with two people, is something where God himself is something that God himself is directly involved in. Really, he is the active party. In every covenant in scripture, it's God who does the heavy lifting, right? You see that over and over and over again. He's the mover and the shaker. Marriage is a lot of work, of course, and both husband and wife have great responsibility, but it is God who joins together, not their good intentions or love and respect or anything else. It's God who joins together what no man may tear apart. And we see this in verse 15, this mysterious phrase, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? This verse is kind of unclear. It's translated a variety of different ways in different translations. The ESV and the New King James both capitalize the word spirit, and I like that. I think it's correct. Just as God breathed spirit into man to create a living being, so God breathes his spirit into a marriage to make a new thing, a new creation. One thing, one flesh out of two. The thing that makes a covenant more than a contract is this presence of the living God. In verse, end of verse 15 says, And why one? He seeks godly offspring. One of the purposes, one of the purposes of marriage is to have kids. God created marriage. He blesses marriage because it's the right environment for people to be raised in. The number one greatest indicator of whether or not a child is going to turn out okay is whether or not he or she is raised with both parents. And of course, the number one indicator of whether or not a child will grow up and go to church when they're older is whether or not dad brought them, specifically dad. Children whose mother take them to church uh, are doing the right thing. Um, if dad's staying at home, it's almost guaranteed the kid's not going to go to church anymore once they're old enough. That's just the statistics. Specifically fathers, children whose mothers take them to church are much, much less likely to continue to have it into adulthood and children whose father leads the religious life, which again anticipates that last verse of Malachi once more. The hope of Israel at this, at this crucial time in their history is wrapped up in this relationship of fathers and sons. The problem that Israel was facing during this time of Malachi was that the disillusion of marriages was an abandonment of children. Newsflash still is. Divorce arms kids. We know that. But that wasn't even the full problem that Israel was facing. In Nehemiah, I told you we'd get there. We get the full picture of the problem that Malachi was addressing. 
And I'll read you this passage from Nehemiah 13. Verse 23 says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. Why only half their children? Because the other half had been raised by their Jewish mothers, who had since been divorced and are weeping at the altar of the Lord. Now Nehemiah reacts pretty strongly to this, and I want to read you this passage and just consider whether or not we should put this in our church's policies and procedures manual. Verse 25, so I continued with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair. So the Bible, there it is. And made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. I mentioned that this is an existential crisis for Israel. Had this continued, Israel could have been destroyed from within in the span of a single generation. If fathers don't teach their children whatever family culture, whatever family traditions that may exist, if fathers don't teach their kids, then it doesn't reach the grandkids. Mm. <coughs> it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why God hates divorce. It cuts a family in pieces, and the one who does the cutting will inevitably end up with stains of violence <coughs> on them that Malachi talks about. Divorce starts a new family tradition. The father who divorces his wife teaches all the children about faithlessness. The model is provided, and it will be followed. One of the greater atrocities of this kind of culture is that it teaches a generation that promises and covenants are to be taken lightly, which is what we see in Malachi, right? It's what everyone, how everyone's dealing with all the covenants, worship and the temple, their families. And what this does is inevitably misrepresents God to people. There's that priestly ministry again. It calls into question the justice of God and his opinion about good and evil. Verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. You say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. For where is the God of justice? These are the words of those who have abandoned covenant. They have tried on sin and thought, This looks fine. I see no downsides here. Now, a generation before... The people had lived comfortably in their houses, right? Saying, yes, we love the temple theoretically, but it's not time to build the temple. This isn't disobedience, it's prudence. And now Malachi 1, we see that the priests were offering their worst, offering blind and lame sacrifices, but they were saying, this is good, this is fine. God has mercy. God is okay with this. And now there's people who had taken their marriage covenant lightly, who had divorced their wives, married unbelieving women, and now are not raising their children in the Lord, but they're still approaching the altar expecting God to be delighted with their offerings. And then with the height of irony, they ask, where's the God of justice? As if they actually wanted righteousness. As if they could stand before a just God in their state of rebellion. Reminder, Israel had lost the sight of a father's love. All this stuff, it's just daddy issues. All their problems, right? <laughs> they had disconnected love from covenant and reduce the idea of holy covenant with God and with their marriages to something that could be changed, ignored, shrugged at, or discarded at their whim. But the father's heart is still for his children. And his heart was to create men in his image. As, as such, he has created men to be faithful fathers. And the hope of Israel was for this heart change to take place, where the father's hearts would be turned towards the children, just like God's heart was faithfully turned towards his people. This book will end with a promise. He's going to say in so many words, I'm going to restore families. And if I don't, the world is cursed. 
Listen, God's faithfulness to his people is going to remind them, I have loved you. That's how we started the whole thing, right? I have loved you. And at the end, I will send Elijah who will turn the father's heart to the children. I am faithful. And his faithfulness to his people creates faithfulness in his people. Be reminded of these words. I have loved you. God has been faithful to each and every one of you. At times that faithfulness has been expressed in the form of chastening, of loving correction, which is not pleasant, but it is good. It's there so that you can see the heart of the Father who loves you, who desires his faithfulness to be expressed by you in your faithfulness, in your covenants. See that in your faithlessness, in your times of failure, he has been faithful. And now being aware of his relentless pursuit of you, let his relentlessness produce in you, his children, his family resemblance, his diehard faithfulness to his holiness and to the work that he has called you to do. This means prioritizing his work above yours, like we see in Haggai. For those whom this applies, this means prioritizing leading your families in the Lord. Prioritizing your families, your marriages, and how you raise your kids. His faithfulness to you ought to produce faithfulness in you. Now we see that the temple building in Haggai and the family building in Malachi, they're separated by a generation, but you can plainly see they're basically talking about the same thing, especially for us New Covenant believers. What we draw out of these is one message. You know, our temple is built by people, right? Your temple building starts with your homes, and it extends to the larger family of God. This is your ministry. These are your priorities. People are greater than projects. And as the Lord calls you to himself, as we see in these prophets, how strongly he desires closeness with his people. As the Lord calls you to himself, he will do so in part by calling your relationships, calling you to relationships with his people. He'll call you to prioritize your ministry to your spouse, to your children, grandchildren, and then to the other people in his family. Now we can rejoice, and we ought to rejoice, that our, our God, our Father, has loved us so well. Let's rejoice that he has covenanted with us and will not be faithless in any of his promises. And let us pray the Holy Spirit's work in us, that his love and faithfulness would produce the same in us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your church, that you would bring us things that we need to hear and speak to us, the words that will shape us into people that resemble your son. Ask your blessing on your church, ask your blessing on your people, that your faithfulness to us would result in faithfulness in us. Bless us by whatever means necessary, in whatever ways we need to be blessed to be drawn into the closeness with you that you so desire. Amen. Amen. Please stand. <laughs> Praise God. Yeah.